Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguysdarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll cover The Shining, Part 4, Snowbound. Let's start the show. Awakening from a sleep, Jack recalls his father, and after a hallucination, destroys the CB radio that is the only communication out of the Overlook Hotel. At the same time, Danny enters a catatonic state with bruises around his throat, and Wendy is certain Jack is to blame. Jack investigates room 217 but doesn't tell Wendy what he finds there. She insists on trying to get Danny off the mountain, but their options are limited and further reduced when Jack throws away a vital part of the snowmobile. Danny has an incident with the topiary and in the ballroom where he finds out what red rum is. He then calls for Dick Halloran. Jay, we've got a pack full section of the book here. Things are really coming to a head now that the family is snowbound within the Overlook. And not only that, there are a lot of thematic things happening here. And I thought we'd start off with this idea of the sins of the father being passed down. Indeed. As Jack has lots of recollection of his relationship with his father and his father's influence on his family, which, spoiler alert, isn't great. No, no. (laughs) let's just say he was a bad influence turns out that jack's father is an alcoholic Mm. uh, prone to violence Mm. beat jack's mother and uh wasn't a nice person to be around yeah and it sounds a little familiar and jack i think is aware of that right and doesn't Mm -hmm. want the cycle to repeat but on the other hand it is repeating yes i wonder if that's one of jack's most tragic aspects is that there are so many things about himself that are not great, but he is so self-aware and introspective of a person that he is, he knows these things about himself and hates these things about himself and maybe hates himself for it. Yeah. Whereas the way that we kind of learn about his father, it's all secondhand through Jack, of course, but I don't think his father hated himself. I think his father hated his life and his family or blamed his family for what he felt was a miserable life. And Jack seems to be blaming his family too, but it's not for necessarily a miserable life, but just sort of the situations he's in and the fact that he's not the writer that he thought he would be Hmm. and that he felt the promise may have held after he got a story published in Esquire and instead he's teaching and struggling with his writing. And then that ends up turning into having to leave the school because he has this episode of violence with with George, and then he's in the hotel and realizing his play might not be as good as he thought. And so there's this, I, I said it questioningly in the intro, hallucination, because it's not exactly clear where this voice is coming from. Mm. That is Jack's father telling him, you have to kill him, Jackie, and her too, because a real artist must suffer, because each man kills the thing he loves because they'll always be conspiring against you, trying to hold you back and drag you down. And Jack hears this over the CB radio and 
at first is like, no, no. And he smashes the CB radio, hoping that that will stop the hallucination or stop the voice. But then later on, you get these insights into his mind like, oh, well, maybe I do have to kill the boy. Maybe I do have to kill my wife. And that keeps Mm -hmm. coming back over and over again. Yeah, there was an interesting description of Jack's father that he always looked like some soft and flapping oversized ghost in his hospital lights. The shirt always untucked and sometimes bloody. The pants cuffs drooping down over the black shoes because we learned that Jack's father was a nurse. Mm. And the fact that he would come home in these flappy white clothes covered in blood makes you wonder, like, did he work in like an ER or something? Did he deal with a lot of heavy trauma? Maybe that was part of what drove him to drink or uh, just really have a lot of struggles with his life that he experienced and witnessed things at, at his job that, that were really difficult. And we're going back a lot of years here. There wasn't maybe the, the right awareness or, or availability of mental health care that his father probably needed and certainly would have benefited from. Jack has this interesting relationship with his father. It's much like Danny's with Jack in that Danny sees Jack as a good man, like he has a special relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And Jack is the youngest in his family. And he seems to have a different relationship with his father than his mother and siblings have, right? There's one brother who like gets out of out of the house as soon as he can. And meanwhile, Jack plays this elevator game with his father where he gets lifted up in the air. And oh, sure, sometimes he drops him or throws him over his head by accident. But you never got the sense until Jack was a little bit older. And there's this incident with Jack's mother getting beaten by his father that um, Jack hated his father. You, you get the sense that, oh, no. I I think my dad is a good man. He just had problems. And that's how Jack views himself, right? Like, ultimately, I think I may be a good man. Mm -hmm. And when in reality, looking at it from the outside, you could see, wait a minute, there's big, big problems here that are warning signs for us, but the family can't see through it. And one of the interesting things is Danny's sort of protecting his father because Wendy's very concerned, right? Yeah. Like he's going to kill us. Something's bad's happening or there's something in the hotel that might hurt Jack. And Danny says, don't worry, he'll be all right. He doesn't shine. Nothing here can hurt him. And I don't know if that's the case. I think Danny might be on the, the wrong path here. And then later on, this section is interesting because Wendy sort of makes excuses for Jack over and over again, right? Like they go through these ups and downs in their relationship. But I would think after these things have happened, like I'd be out of there. Or like lock myself in the other wing of the hotel away from Jack. But she, she keeps coming back. And King says, for a moment, Wendy saw Jack's true face, the one he ordinarily kept so well hidden. And it was a face of desperate unhappiness, the face of an animal caught in a snare beyond its ability to decipher and render harmless. And that snare could be the hotel or it could be the sins of the father being passed down, right? Like he's just caught in this cycle. Or I interpret it as Wendy and Danny. Jack's family is the snare. Yeah. In, from his perspective. Right. And that is, I think, a direct echo of Jack's father. The information we get about Jack's father is that it seems like he is a man who is living this life of quiet and occasionally very violent desperation. Mm-hmm. He goes to work, he comes home drunk, he takes it out on his family. And he's probably in a position where. He resents the family situation he has. He resents the job he has. He resents the life he has, but he has no way or he can't conceive of a way to change it, improve it, or even escape it. It is the animal caught in a snare situation Mm -hmm. that the son, Jack, is now in. 
And I like the idea though that that you said that maybe the hotel is the snare, but I think that Jack decided to go to the hotel and decided to stay in the hotel because he felt like he was trapped by his family situation. And even when he was making the final decisions about ultimately to uh, to imprison them there by sabotaging the snowmobile, he was doing this because the alternative that he sees is just utterly unacceptable. Yeah. And what's really kind of sad about it is that he has this vision of himself as, I'm a writer, damn it, and I'm a good writer. It's just the world's fault that they haven't recognized that yet. But if I get enough of a chance, the world will. In the meantime, I'll take this caretaker job at a hotel, which will allow me to spend my evenings writing. And maybe the next thing that I, I write will be that ticket to notoriety and success. But he's still doing a caretaker job that is something that he sees as beneath him. Mm -hmm. And from that perspective, it's not really much different than the doom and gloom prospect of shoveling people's driveways and shopping for groceries with food stamps that he pictures as the alternative. Right. He's not doing his chosen thing already. He's already compromised everything. And here he is doing what actually is a, a fine job. and a great opportunity on paper. It's just, I don't think he likes it. No. I don't think he likes the situation. And if he didn't already, he now blames his family. He blames his wife and child for putting him in this position. Right. There's this constant refrain towards the end of this section where he keeps saying like, it's my job. It's my duty. I'm here. I'm here paid to do this. I need to check the boiler. I need to take care of all these things. And what do you mm. expect me to do? Just leave the hotel? and go down. And then, as you said, we're going to go on the dole or you're going to leave me and we're going to have to hock everything we own. And I'm leaving my responsibilities behind. And his responsibilities, he's saying it's the hotel, but really it's to provide for his family, yeah, which is what he wants to do. And he saw what that happened to his father. His father wanted to provide for the family and instead he's get caught in this life that he hates. And so there's this constant pressure that Jack feels to be like, why are you doing this? Why are you putting me in this situation? And to cap it all off, we get a little bit more insight into Jack's state of mind when he goes on this long introspective journey about his work. Mm. And there's a line about the play that he's writing where he says, not the intellectual racking of Gary Benson, but the destruction of a kindly old teacher and headmaster unable to see through the cynical wiles of this monster masquerading as a boy. When I read that line, I marked it in my notes because... This sounds like really bad news for Dan. Yeah. This sounds like a writer who has completely changed his relationship to his own work, the characters in the work, and is now reframing this, this student character, this boy, as a monster, a cynical, manipulative monster that needs to be perhaps destroyed for the quote-unquote hero of his story to succeed. <laughs> That sounds pretty bad. Yeah. And it doesn't help that we then have this scene where Jack may be sleepwalking, but he imagines himself in room 217 with the body of George in the bathtub, and he somehow has some sort of mallet that is hard on one side and soft on the other that he starts beating George with, and then he sort of snaps out of it, and he realizes he's not in room 217, but instead he's sweaty and looming over Danny's cot as Danny sleeps. And he's like, oh, no, not Danny. But then he's like, oh, well, well, maybe Danny. Yeah, maybe Danny. <laughs> eh, well, yeah, maybe. So yeah, not good. 
not good at all. And I think all that builds up to the fact that this isn't just psychological with Jack. Like there seems to be something more happening in the hotel itself. So Danny has this incident in 217. He's got these actual physical bruises around his neck. And as I said earlier, Wendy at first thinks Jack did it, but then they're pretty convinced it wasn't because Danny says it was her. There's a whole chapter called It Was Her. And they realize, you know, Wendy at first is like, there's somebody else in the hotel. And Jack's like, well, I'll go investigate 217. And he goes and investigates 217, sees all sorts of spooky shit, and then comes back. And there's a short chapter. It's what, a page maybe? And it's just called The Verdict. And Wendy's like, what did you find? He's like, nothing. It was empty. Nothing there. And we know uh-huh. that is definitely not true. Uh-huh. Jack just begins gaslighting so hard at this point. And it really had me scratching my head. Like, oh, why? Why is he gaslighting? Why does he keep lying about not seeing or seeing things? Yep. Does he not want to admit that he might be crazy? Like, like is part of him just worried that, that he's just going nuts? And therefore, he doesn't want to acknowledge that or that possibility? Or is the overlook, is the hotel somehow compelling him to deny what is so obvious? Either of those possibilities are, are, are pretty bad, you know, for the, the situation they're in. Mm-hmm. But Danny was honest and open about all of this, about all of his experiences. And Wendy has started to see things herself that are undeniable. So there's no reason at this point for Jack to be the holdout when he's experienced all the same things as the other two people. But yet he is. Yeah. He's providing just enough deniability to the whole situation that they can continue to, I don't know, maybe pretend that the situation isn't what it is for just a little longer. Yeah. The, the lying just continues, though, because he does this weird thing where he's like sort of seducing Wendy. Hmm. You know, they're very worried about Danny and he's like, oh, don't worry, everything will be OK. And he's feeling her up and kissing her and like trying to calm her down. And she's like, oh, there's something, there's something else out there. There's something, another thing, like we don't have the radio anymore, which he destroyed. And okay, I guess I buy his reason that he was sleepwalking. Jack lied about that. And then Jack mentions the snowmobile, which he had known about this whole time. Mm-hmm. And when he's like, oh, the snowmobile, we can get off. And he's like, oh yeah, we can get off that way. And first he tries to, oh, well, maybe there's no parts or maybe there's no gas. And She's, you know, counters every one of his arguments. And then he sabotages the snowmobile as well. Um, Just more lying. And then when Danny talks about the topiary, he says at one point, if Wendy asks me specifically about it, I will tell her everything. And that's a lie by omission, right? Mm -hmm. As you said, like he could tell her everything and he just continues to lie. And it's there is no good reason really to do that, especially when you think, you know, we're both married. Like, we don't keep lies. I wouldn't keep lies like that for my wife. No. Whether I thought I was going crazy or not, but there is something that's doing it. And whether it's his own worries or not, there's this telling line that we think maybe it's something more. And Jack thinks in that instant kneeling there, everything came clear to him. It was not just Danny the Overlook was working on. It was working on him too. It wasn't Danny who was the wink link. It was him. He was the vulnerable one. The one who could be bent and twisted until something snapped. And despite Danny's assurances earlier, oh, daddy doesn't have the shine, he'll be okay. You get the sense here like, nope, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. The the overlook's too powerful. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think Danny's being dishonest about that assessment of the situation because he's operating on the information that Dick Holleran gave him, that these are just echoes of things that that happened. But they're just echoes. They're just pictures in a book. 
blink your eyes and they'll go away. And only somebody with the shine would ever even know that they're there. So of course, yeah, based on that information and that guidance, his father has nothing to worry about. His mother has nothing to worry about. But that line that you just quoted tells us that that is not true. Danny just doesn't quite get it yet. And it makes me wonder if Dick didn't believe it either, because why else give Danny the warning, if you need help, call for me? Hmm. It makes me wonder if Dick was telling the truth or if he knew that there was a potential problem and whether or not Dick knew that it was the hotel or something else. But he must have had an inkling like to say to Danny, if you need help, call me. Maybe that's part of how Halloran works with his shine. Could be. But I think what we're working towards here is the next thing I want to talk about, which is that shit just got real. <laughs> right? We, we are talking, we were talking about Jack's gaslighting and basically that's his denial of the reality of this situation and Jack's acknowledgement that the hotel is manipulating him. And even though he's denying it with the gaslighting, it's still there. And then we get a line that the hotel wanted Danny, maybe all of them, but Danny for sure. The hedges had really walked. There was a dead woman in 217, a woman that was perhaps only a spirit and harmless under most circumstances, but a woman who was now an active danger, like some malevolent clockwork toy. She had been wound up and set in motion by Danny's own odd mind and his own. So yeah, Danny's injury is real. He has bruises. He almost died or drowned or some combination of things because this ghost or undead corpse or something choked him nearly to death. Yep. It's getting bad and feels like it's going to be worse. Right. And, and you know, we've already talked about how Jack has seen all these things, but then Danny does this thing where he makes his own mental map of the hotel and he's like, oh, these are safe areas and these are bad areas. And if I stay away from these bad areas, like room 217 and the topiary gardens and this other place, maybe I'll be all right. I'll just hang out in the lobby and I'll hang out in the bedroom and I'll hang out in the kitchen and everything will be fine. There's another great line, you know, you had mentioned about how there's this clockwork toy that has been wound up. And then later on, Danny sees that actual clock that hasn't been wound. And when he winds it up, it starts going. And mm. he says his own mind is like a key that's starting everything. Like maybe he was the impetus for all this getting moving. So while Jack and Danny have both made these decisions, like the hotel is haunted, it's really not until the end. You know, Jack tries to, I don't think it's gaslighting at this point, but he, he tells this whole long story about, oh yeah, stigmata. Maybe the kid's somehow manifesting these bruises on his neck, just like some stigmata type thing or something else. And when he's like, oh, well, that maybe, I guess if you say it's yeah. okay, I guess, you know, in the seventies, sure. All this weird mystical shit was in the air and sure. I, I saw, I saw in search of, it could happen. Leonard Nimoy told me that there's this possibility. Yeah. But it's not yeah, until- When you're debating whether it's self-created stigmata choke, <laughs> choke marks or a ghost did it, what, what is, what is your conversation really? <laughs> yeah, what right. is the debate? Yeah. And so Wendy's like, oh, I guess so. And, you know, like, oh, if you didn't see anything up in the room, I guess maybe there's nothing here. But then when there's this incident with the elevator mm. and everyone hears the elevator moving and the elevator's actually moving, like there's something that has happened. Either there's somebody else in the in the hotel with them or something is making this happen. It's not just, oh, there must be a, a weird, what, what does Jack say? Like, oh, there's just a weird circuit that broke. Like that, a, yeah, short circuit yeah, or something. And, and that's causing the elevator to go. And then she like climbs into the elevator. It's like, well, what about this? And she's got an actual party streamer and a cat mask. And both her and Danny have heard music in their head. And it's the same scene that had been imagined in the 40s. Like at that point, everyone's like, all right, there's definitely 
bad news happening here and something more than just our imagination, unless we're having a mass hallucination. And Jack's explanation of a short circuit doesn't fly at all because this is an elevator that requires manual operation. It requires somebody to swing the lever over to go up and then swing it to stop when you reach the floor. It would never like go up to the second floor and down to the first floor and up to the third floor on its own. It's not how this elevator works. (laughs) And Jack is not an electrical engineer. Like it's like, oh yeah, I just know all this stuff. And like, he's just obviously making stuff up along the way. I just happened to be in an elevator like that this past weekend. Oh, yeah? That had an actual operator moving it from floor to floor. Pretty cool. cool. The whole gate and everything. And then at the end of one of these chapters, King says, it wasn't really empty because here in the Overlook, things just went on and on. Here in the Overlook, all times were one. And this is happening while Danny's like looking at the clock and they're all having these images of the 1945 when this party was. And yeah, pretty neat stuff. And that sort of reminded me of a Dark Tower thinny. I don't think it's an actual thinny, right? Because I I couldn't make the connection. But this idea that sort of time is a flat circle and all times are one, it gave me the little bit of a a rolling gunslinger Dark Tower feel. But I didn't feel quite strong enough to put it in Dark Tower thinnies, Jay. A little bit of Dark Tower, a little bit of Rust Coal quote there. Not strong enough to be its own Dark Tower thinny, so I thought I'd introduce it here as we segue into Dark Tower thinnies. So, Jay, I wasn't able to find any, but you had one that I wanted to kick myself for not noticing. Yeah, this one was right there on the page. This must be one of the things that King over time decided. I've said the number 19 a lot of times. It must, uh, it must be a magic number for me <laughs> because Jack has apparently been sober for 19 months. Jack says the first bar he'd been in for 19 months and the damn thing was dry. Just his luck. <laughs> like I said, I totally missed it. and I. I hate myself for it. I think I was so enraptured by this scene with Lloyd, which is almost word for word in the movie. Yeah, it's a captivating scene for sure. It's a great scene. Did you have any other thinnies? I had one other one, which was, of course, not quite as on the nose as the other one, but I saw it as kind of a reference to the white Mm. that Roland speaks of that, you know, is sort of the driving force for good in his realm. And the line here is something, luck, fate, providence had been trying to save him, him being Jack. Some other luck, white luck. And at the last moment, bad old Jack Torrance luck had stepped in. The lousy run of cards wasn't over yet. <laughs> I don't know about you, Sean, but I don't think I've ever encountered like the term white luck. I've, you know, good luck, bad luck, no luck at all. Right. <laughs> but I've never heard white luck. So that's why this stood out to me, that this was some sort of luck that is trying to save Jack. He sees this as a as, as like almost an outside force, trying to, in many different ways and at many different times, guide him out of this terrible situation. Yep. And yet he keeps he keeps turning over that next card. And here we are now with the snowmobile out of commission, snowbound, and I guess gugga ghosts <laughs> haunting the hotel and trying to kill them. Yes. All right. I think it's time for a strange version of yucking it up. What, what, what do you mean by strange? So, Jay, there was a couple of moments in here, but nothing that was like overly yucky. Mm. King sort of held back some of the more gross moments. Um, there, there's no guts falling out of the running man type of scenes. Yeah, those are like top of the list yucking it up moments. Yeah, but I will say 
what this section lacks in yucky moments it's like legitimately scary for me same here in a number of different ways so we thought we'd change our yucking it up to sort of this top scary moments of this section so what do you got so this is from when jack goes up to inspect room 217 and then has a pretty scary experience himself and then feels like he just barely escapes and when he's standing out in the hall the line is from inside he seemed to hear an odd wet thumping sound far off dim as if something had just scrambled belatedly out of the tub, as if to greet a caller, as if it had realized the caller was leaving before the social amenities had been completed, and so it was now rushing to the door, all purple and grinning, to invite the caller back inside, perhaps forever. Mm. That capped off one of the scariest moments in what has been a pretty scary book for me. Yeah. My heart was racing. I could only imagine how Jack felt in that moment. What if the door wasn't going to stop this thing? Yeah. What if that wasn't enough? Clearly, there was somebody, some horrible somebody on the other side of that door, and it wanted him. Pretty scary. So I have two moments. I don't have exact quotes, but they are sort of the anticipation of horror Ooh. and very realistic situations. So, you know, ghosts ghouls spirits yeah whatever but when danny is in the playground and he's in this tunnel he gets this sort of he he can't he doesn't say the word claustrophobia but he has this claustrophobia because he thinks there might be something in there with him he's worried that the snow is going to fall and trap him in this this playground tunnel that he's in and he's worried that no one knows he's out there and and that anticipation of horror gets me i think i i don't really feel like I'm claustrophobic, but whenever I read these type of claustrophobic things, it gets to me. So that was one scary moment. And then the second one for me, we're going to hit all three main characters here in our in our scary moments, Jay, is Wendy. When the elevator has stopped and King says it is stopped between floors so that the floor of the elevator is like chest high on Jack. Mm. And Wendy decides to climb in which immediately freaked me out oh, yeah. because I'm like, this elevator has been moving by itself and she has just put herself in a position where if it decides to move, she's going to be cut in half. And that just scared the bejesus out of me when, when she went in there, obviously without incident. And I knew that she wasn't going to get cut in half by the elevator, but it was still scary enough for me that I wanted to note it in our odd yucking it up section. Well, Sean, to paraphrase Steven Seagal in Hard to Kill, the anticipation of horror is worse than horror itself. Well, there you go. If, if it was Steven Seagal, then it must be true. You can't argue with Steven Seagal. It's physically impossible. He would, he would beat me up if, if I tried to. Yeah. Or, or he would pretend to beat you up and get his stunt double to do it. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Well, we want to thank our patrons for supporting the show. They get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as our bonus podcast episodes. And just a reminder, as we start to head towards the end of The Shining, that we will probably be covering not one, but two Shining-related movies in our bonus episodes coming up in future months here. So if you want to hear more of our Shining coverage, be sure to sign up as a patron now. And our latest patron, who we'd like to thank, is Elise B., who joined recently at the Gunslinger level. Thank you, Elise. And I realized I didn't mention where you could become a patron, and I'm sure our loyal listeners could probably recite it with me, but that's patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Awesome. Sean, is it time for some fun stuff? It certainly is. Let's get to it. All right. So the first chapter of this section is about the characters falling asleep and having sort of 
night thoughts. And I had to read this line two or three times before I realized that there was not telekinesis happening here. But the line is, Wendy was asleep with her knitting on her lap. The yarn and needles rose in the slow time of her breathing. And I immediately imagined these like needles sort of rising up off her lap (laughs) and like starting to float around the room. And I was like, oh my God, the needles are going to stab somebody. But then I realized, no, they're just resting on her lap and it's moving up and down. It's not some sort of telekinesis. I was totally prepared for something X-Men like to happen here. Uh, that sounds like something out of the Beetlejuice movie, you know, just like <laughs> yes. knitting needles, knitting, and there's just a ghost you can't see, yeah. you know, doing the knitting. <laughs> awesome. So less fun stuff than me not being a good reader. I can't blame you for being so enthusiastic that you're making your way through quickly. Um, I wanted to call out a word that Jack slash King, I guess, coined here when Jack was searching through all of the old paperwork and shipping receipts and things like that, he thought of them in general as overlookiana. Mm. And I, I just thought that this was just kind of a crafty word. Yeah. That certainly isn't a, a real word that you'd find in the dictionary, but I, I suppose adding iana as a suffix <laughs> to whatever you're thinking about, then there you go. And this obsessive nature that he has. Yeah. It just so captured there. Like he's not just a collector of material and he's not just a researcher, but he's like obsessed with this. And he's, I think this comes up when he's like looking through old milk receipts Mm -hmm. that are literally just like two gallons of milk dropped off or two quarts of this dropped off. And he's looking at every single one because he's afraid that there's like just some little detail that's going to unlock everything about the overlook. And if he, if he sees the right piece of paperwork. Yeah. The thing that reveals that obsessive quality is that he's looking to make a mystic connection that he was just sure existed. A mystic connection between Milk Receipt 1 and Milk Receipt 2? <laughs> yeah. yeah, not likely, Jack. Well, I'm sure that there's one Milk Receipt in which there was 19 bottles of milk ordered. We would find that is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Very interesting overlookiana. All right. Another fun stuff I had was, I, I, I will say I wasn't overly engaged when Jack did a deep dive on his own writing, I thought it was a little heavy handed, but it, it just goes to show how self-aware Jack is. And I think it does add something you had already mentioned earlier about how Jack's enjoyment of certain characters and how he relates to different ones uh, influences the book, but it just went on for a long time. But I will say that I did like the title of the Jack Torrance short story, The Monkey Is Here, Paul DeLong. <laughs> Just sort of cracked me up. The monkey is here, Paul DeLong. It's about a child molester, so it's obviously not funny at all, but I did think the title was was catchy. Yeah, almost could be like the title of a children's book, which yeah. it is not. It is not by any stretch <laughs> of the It is not a that. children's book. What else you got? I wanted to call out yet another word that I thought was interesting. I didn't like it quite as much as Overlookiana, but um, King uses the word vibratoriously mm. in the sentence, he threw the brass handle over and it wheezed vibratoriously up the shaft, the brass grate rattling madly. I don't think I've ever encountered vibratoriously before. And that's one of those adverbs that King always says you shouldn't use or you should yeah. strike out. But I guess that one's unique enough that it's probably worth leaving in there. Or maybe he worked a little too hard to make an adverb there. Yeah, maybe. Uh, we already know that Danny watches a lot of PBS right? Sesame Street mm-hmm. and Electric Company. I'm guessing that that's also where he saw Secret Agent Man, which was a 
British TV series and a lot of British TV series made its way over to America via PBS. And there's this whole long passage where Danny imagines himself as Patrick McGuhan, who was the secret agent man. And he has this whole Cold War fantasy of of running away from things and the Russians out to get him or something. And while it was a fairly good metaphor, I thought that this novel is so surreal in some instances that he's more like Patrick McGowan's more famous character, number six in The Prisoner. I agree. I am not very familiar with McGowan's Secret Agent Man, but I am familiar with The Prisoner. I've watched the entire series, and it's one of my faves. I know it's one of yours for sure. Yeah. So uh, Secret Agent Man, I've only seen a few episodes for, but it was sort of a black and white. And there's some folks who are convinced that McGowan's Secret Agent Man is who number six was prior to becoming number six. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. And there's like one scene in one of the episodes where they mention a name. It's sort of in the background and they thought maybe like it was number two saying Magoon's secret agent man's character's name. And people have like paused it and like try to listen. And like, is he saying such and such? Because that was his character's name. What it might be as a sequel, it is very much totally different, right? Like, Secret Agent Man was a fairly straightforward Cold War drama, whereas The Prisoner is this surreal mindfuck, for lack of a better yeah. term. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's like a tie-dye, multicolored, Willy Wonka thing, too. Yeah. It's bonkers, but that's part of its charm. And that makes me think more of the the, the craziness of The Overlook. Yes. Uh, which is probably what, what you're alluding to here. Is that- Absolutely. Absolutely. My final fun stuff is a line that I liked a lot, and apparently so did more than 2,000 other Kindle readers, because we all underlined it. But the line is, tough old world, baby. If you're not bolted together tightly, you're going to shake, rattle, and roll before you turn 30. (laughs) Kind of fun. Yeah, I dig it. A little bit of rock and roll reference there, too. And of course, like the characters of Jack and Wendy are either just... 30 or just before 30? Like, I don't think that they're over 30. No, no. They're, I mean, we didn't we determine that last episode that Wendy's like 19 years older than, than Danny, which would place her like 24 or 25? Yeah. And so, maybe Jack, Jack's like a couple one of years, or two years older, yeah. maybe. It's sort of hard to picture them as young, but they are, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're fairly young. So, yeah, when I was that age, I was even more of an idiot than I am today. <laughs> I was not bolted together tightly then, or am I now? (laughs) No. I've lost a couple of bolts since. (laughs) Uh, All right. Time for Other Worlds Than These. I recently watched The Batman, starring Robert Pattinson. It's the latest iteration of a movie with Batman as the protagonist. Oh, okay. I was wondering where you're going with this. You're wondering, yeah. Yeah. The Batman. What is this movie about, Jay? Eh, Really hard to say. I won't go on about it except to say that it has a wonderful cast and I thought that it was a great Batman movie. It's over three hours long, but it never felt like it overstayed its welcome. It just had a lot of story to tell. And I'm glad that it took the time to tell all of that story. So check out The Batman. It is now streaming on HBO and other streaming platforms. It's not too hard to find, and um, I recommend it. I saw it too. I would recommend it as well. It was good. I am recommending the comic book Saga by Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples. 
saga started about 10 years ago, and it was originally pitched as Star Wars meets Game of Thrones. And I don't think that quite captures it enough because it's a lot more crazy than that. But basically, it's about. Uh, so is it like Solo and season eight of Game of Thrones? <laughs> no, it's more like space opera from Star Wars and uh, some political stuff from Game of Thrones, but not really. It's it's sort of a Romeo and Juliet story. So there's two lovers, but they're on opposite sides of a war and uh, sort of different species even. And now they're being hunted down by the people in charge because they don't want them to be, uh, hey, there's a chance that we could understand each other, right? But it's a hell of a lot more than that. And there are such crazy ideas and the art is beautiful. It started, like I said, 10 years ago. And one of the things I like about it, it's got a very consistent creative crew. Brian K. Vaughn's mapped out the whole storyline and Fiona Staples is just this wonderful artist that's got a unique look compared to most comics. Anyhow, that's Saga, published by Image Comics. Awesome. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. Jay, I got my merch in this past week. Sweet. Was I the most popular person walking around the block with my Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came shirt? Yes, I was. Yeah, I have no doubt. I have no doubt. You too could be the most famous person in your neighborhood by walking around with a shirt. Get it now. And if you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower. Next episode, join us as we cover part five of The Shining, Matters of Life and Death. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Here's something weird. Today it was confirmed that Christopher Walken is going to play the Emperor in the Dune movie. What? And he was in a video for Moby's. Shit, I watched it today too. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, it's not Moby though. It's a little bit of this. A little, a little bit, bit of that. that. Yeah, that one. Who is that? Weapon of Choice by That's Fat Boy it. Slim. There is a line in that song that says walk without rhythm to avoid the worm holy shit it's like been planning it ever for 20 since years the 90s yeah can you say danny enters a catatonic state one more time i think you said like catonic state or something catatonic 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 catatan cataton catatan cataton catatan Kenatan, let me love you, let me love you, Kenatan. Let me love you, let me love you, Kenatan. I feel for you. That's also a song by Prince that he wrote, and then Chaka Khan made it famous. Uh, I think I love you. I have been what I've been. I, yeah, it took me forever to watch this. Months and even. <laughs> I recently watched The Batman. I'm just going to edit out most of what you just said. Joke's on you, Jay. I'm editing this episode. It's all staying in. Your crap is getting edited out. That's fine. That 20 minutes you talked about the Batman. Jeez.
Yeah. Never ending. Leave some for other people. Talking about how it's got Robert Pattinson and Zoe Kravitz and Paul Dano and Jeffrey Wright and John Turturro and Andy Serkis and Colin Farrell. You know what I say whenever Jay's going on and on about something? You're cut too, shushy.